Open your Bibles. We're going to be in the book of Judges, chapter 2. So we are racing through this. <laughs> well, remember that chapter 1 covered this uh, lackluster... Uh, this lackluster attempt to, of the tribes to purify the land. There was some success, but overall, uh, they either failed to drive out the Canaanites or they decided to live with them in one capacity or another. This is what we saw happen in chapter 1. Well, chapter 2 continues the introduction, but it is different in the sense that the perspective changes. And so, uh, you and I, we, we see life right here on earth. Um, uh, chapter two will begin to give us a more aerial view. And so we're gonna be able to see more and more of what God's perspective is on what's happening. And so it is kind of a rehashing what happened in chapter one in a sense it's going to be different, but in the sense, but at the same time, we're going to be looking at it from a completely different perspective, the way God does. And so let's begin uh, with chapter one, or chap uh, let's begin with in chapter two, uh, beginning with the first five verses. It says, "The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, "I brought you out of Egypt and led you into the land I had promised to your fathers." I also said, I will never break my covenant with you. You are not to make a covenant with the people who are living in this land, and you are to tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed me. What is this you have done? Therefore, I now say, I will not drive out these people before you. They will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a trap to you. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these words to the Israelites, the people wept loudly. And so they named that place Bochum, and offered sacrifices there to the Lord. Now, this opens up, the very first sentence opens up with some interesting facts. We, we have the angel of the Lord, and the angel of the Lord is going from Gilgal to Bochum. And uh, Bochum is, the name of, is what they named this location after the angel of the Lord gave this pronouncement. And that is because Bochum means weepers a place where people are crying. And so after this angel of the Lord made this pronouncement, they look back upon that, and that location now has that name. Well, Gilgal uh, is on the east side of the Jordan River. So um, as soon as the Israelites crossed the Jordan River, we'll remember that, the, that God parted the waters at flood stage, and the people of Israel walked through it, just like they did on the Red Sea. They walked through the Jordan River, and they crossed over where well, the very first place they camped at was called Gilgal. And this is a, an important place. They, they made those 12 stones, uh, one from each of the 12 tribes, in commemoration of God leading them across the river into the promised land. This is where the, the men were circumcised. Um, they, uh, they held the, the Passover there. Um, now the tabernacle had been moved to Shiloh during Joshua's lifetime. But this is the location, Gilgal. And so um, uh, they, he's, the angel of the Lord has moved from there to this location where he's making this pronouncement where we uh, see a very different picture. Now we see the nation of Israel crying.
crying. Now, this angel of the Lord, angel just basically means messenger, an envoy. And so someone who is bringing a message for the Lord uh, could be a person. It could be a prophet. It could be an angel. Uh, but many times in the Pentateuch, in Joshua, and in the book of Judges, this angel of the Lord is very prominent. We will see him other places in Scripture, but he's very prominent in, these, in this section of the Bible. And what this is, is this is Jesus making appearances before the Incarnation. They're called the pre-existent appearances of Christ, or the theophany. And so, uh, why do we think that? Well, it's because of the different uh, things that happen when this angel of the Lord appears. In our text this morning, he's actually speaking as God in the first person. Um, if we were to go to the sixth chapter of Judges, when we study Gideon here in the future, hopefully, we'll see that he is referred to as Yahweh. Um, sometimes he's referred to as God, like in Genesis 32. And sometimes we see this angel of the Lord uh, displaying uh, divine attributes and making decisions that only God can make, divine prerogatives. And there are some passages, uh, such as Numbers 20, verse 16, and Zechariah 1, verses 12 through 13, where we see the angel of the Lord, but the text presents him in such a way that we can see that there is a plurality in the Godhead. And so this angel of the Lord is not a man, it's not an angel, it's Jesus. And we'll remember in the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 5, that Joshua was all excited getting ready for the battle and he saw this, this guy across the thing that had a, a sword and he was like, whose side are you on? Are you on our side or the enemy's? He said, I'm on my own side. And he said, remove your shoes for the ground you're standing on is holy. This was the angel of the Lord. It was something very similar that we saw happen to Moses before the burning bush when God told him to remove his sandals. And so here, the angel of the Lord is making this pronouncement where he is saying that uh, I, I led you out of Egypt. I led you to the land that I promised to you. I'm not going to break my covenant. But then he commands them to not make covenants with the people that are living there with him. But since you have, I'm not going to drive them out before you. So when all of this comes to roost and when you're dreading the decisions that you've made, I'm not going to drive them out. You're going to be stuck in the situation that you have created. Now, a covenant, um, a parity treaty or a parity covenant means that people are, are two equals. But in a Caesarean treaty or a covenant, one of the parties is inferior. And of course, this covenant between Israel and God, Israel is the inferior. And this is why God refers to it as my covenant here in the text. Well, these people are crying after they hear this and they offer sacrifices to God and, and uh, tears are good. It's good to see tears. Um, a lot of people are too proud and refined for such a thing today. But tears have to come from the heart and for the right reason. You know, people can gnash their teeth in anguish over what's happening to them, but there's no repentance whatsoever. Um, the, the prophet Joel uh, gives us a really good example of where we need to not only tear our, we need to tear our hearts, not just our clothes. I'll read the full passage here. It says, um, Even now, this is the Lord's declaration. Turn to me with all your heart, 
with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Tear your hearts, not just your clothes, and return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in faithful love, and He relents from sending disaster. So this teaches us uh, something very, very important right off the bat, and that is that uh, once again, God is reminding us that He looks at our hearts. Now as we continue uh, reading, beginning in verse uh, 6, We're going to read about Joshua again. And Joshua died in the book of Joshua. <laughs> Joshua died in chapter 1 and here he's dying again. So obviously we are rehashing and revisiting things. So in verse 6, Joshua sent the people away and the Israelites went to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. And so you'll remember when we read Joshua 23 and Joshua 24 and we looked at how he was making this final mandate or commission to the people before he passed away. And he was telling them to go out and take possession of their lands. So it's revisiting that concept. Verse 7, The people worshipped the Lord throughout Joshua's lifetime and during the lifetimes of the elders who outlived Joshua, that generation. That generation had seen all the Lord's great works that he had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. They buried him in the territory of his inheritance, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaash. And that whole generation was also gathered to their ancestors. But then, after them, another generation rose up who did not know the Lord or the works that he had done for Israel. The Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They worshipped the Baals and abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of Egypt. They went after other gods from the surrounding peoples and bowed down to them. They infuriated the Lord, for they had abandoned Him and worshipped Baal and the Ashtoreths. The Lord's anger burned against Israel, and He handed them over to marauders who raided them. He sold them to the enemies around them so that they could no longer resist their enemies. Whenever the Israelites went out, the Lord was against them, and He brought disaster on them, just as He had promised and sworn to them. And so they suffered greatly. So there's a generation that followed God, and there's a generation that didn't. What was the, the, the key factor here in this text that's telling us that why one did and one didn't? One generation saw the great works of the Lord and one did not. It says that they didn't know God. In verse 10, the whole generation, after that, another generation who rose up who did not know the Lord or the works that He had done. Well, it doesn't mean that they weren't aware of God or they didn't know of God. It meant that they didn't acknowledge Him. Um, uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, there's a guy named Eli, and he's got two sons, and they're, they're priests. So, uh, can you imagine a priest that has no regard for the Lord? Well, these guys did. In verse 12, it says that these two boys had no regard for the Lord. And so this is, a, this is the situation here. We have this next generation who has no regard for the Lord. How does something like that happen? 
Is it the parents' fault? Is it the priest's fault? The priests are the ones who are supposed to be teaching. You know, parents and pastors and priests, the elders, they're the ones who are supposed to be impressing upon the next generation the value of living for God. That uh, living for God is, is to your benefit. It's where you find true happiness and peace. Where you won't have a life where you have to look back on it with a, a, a lifelong uh, list of regrets. Uh, this is, there's a great value in living for the Lord. And so maybe there was a percentage of this that falls on their shoulders in failing to do that. We don't know. I know pastors who have uh, raised their children in church and have homeschooled them. And then when they got on their own, they headed off in their own direction. Well, for whatever reason, there was ingratitude towards the things of God. There was a, a disconnect from their history. We see that today. I, I'm not going to blame everything on this present generation because our, our nation began to walk away from God a long time ago. But today there is you know, an abandonment of the Judean Christian heritage that our nation has. We were not founded on the Quran or Buddhism or atheism. Our heritage is, is Christian in the United States. And our young people have walked away from that. Today we have censorship and we have uh, an, an unhealthy, detrimental reliance on the government. Those facts illustrate that there's a disconnect from history. You obviously do not know your history or these things would not be happening. And this is exactly what's occurring here in the book of Judges with this generation. Now, if we look at what they did, what this next generation did, it may help us to understand why they walked away from God, why they had no regard for Him. We're told here that they, they uh, worshipped the Baals. So obviously, the first thing they did is they, they lacked faith that God would hand the enemies over to them. They lacked obedience because it was, there was an easier road. But at the end of the day, what they decided to do was to not separate themselves from these people. And so everything that followed is inevitable. We have to remember this uh, debasing concept of having communion with their gods was achieved through these sexual fertility rituals. This is why Genesis chapter 1 was so revolutionary. Because it introduced the true God who is distinct from creation. He is not at the whims and inclinations of people and His creation. He is sovereign. He is holy. And He acts out of His own good pleasure. Completely different. They also find out that what they were doing infuriated God. So, all this Baal worship, all this nonsense, no. That's not actually working in the way you think it's working. It's actually making God mad. And so what happened? God gave them over 
to their enemies and they suffered, verse 15, they suffered greatly. Now, in this next section, is kind of a large section we're going to read. It begins in verse 16 and goes into the first part of chapter 3. This section summarizes the book. It's going to summarize everything that's getting ready to happen. And you will remember that what we are going to see in this book is a, is a period of cycles where everything's going pretty good. And when things are going pretty good, we tend to get sloppy and lazy and complacent and enjoy our fluency. And so the next thing you know, we begin to do things that are wrong. And it brings punishment. And then we realize our dilemma that what we've done and we cry out to God for forgiveness. We ask for His help. He raises up someone to deliver us out of our mess. Out of our mess. And in this book, it's called a judge. So he raises up a judge. The judge delivers, and then there's peace. And then it goes around the clock again. It's a little vicious cycle. And so we're going to see that in this book to a point. But why does God do that? It's not like He does one cycle and, we're, and we've got it. We do it again, and then they do it again, and then they do it again. The bad news is that each time this happens, it goes down. And so when you go around the clock and you get back up to 12, the problem is as you go through the book of Judges through this period of time, when they get back, they don't get back to 12. The restart button starts to slip, and so they reset back to a place that's not quite where they should have been. They're not back to center. And then the next time, they're not back to that center. And before you know it, they've gotten way off. And so you think you're doing really good, but in reality, you're not at all. And so here, uh, obviously, I hope I don't have to spell it out for us as Christians, but the application is very easy to see, is that we can do this in our own lives. If you think about how you mess up and walk away from God and you have to ask for forgiveness, and you, know, you can find yourself hitting a reset button that's not really the reset button. You're not really coming back to center. You're not really coming back to a real clean, pure place with God. And what's going to happen in what we're getting ready to read is we're going to find out why God allows these cycles to continue. It's because of His compassion. That's the kind of person He is. And so, we're His kids, and when He sees us messing up, and we cry out to Him, it, it hurts Him when He sees us messing up, it hurts Him when we're living wrong, and He hears our cries. It's because of His compassion. And so, uh, this begins in verse... Uh, what does the slide say? Verse 16? Is it on that one yet? Have I not clicked the magic button? All right, so there's this, there's the cycles that you can see, and I'll begin reading in verse, chapter two, beginning verse sixteen. So the Lord raised up judges who saved them from the power of their marauders, but they did not listen to their judges. Instead, they prostituted themselves with other gods, bowing down to them. They quickly turned away uh, from the way of their fathers, who had walked in obedience to the Lord's commands. They did not do as their fathers did. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for the Israelites, the Lord was with him and saved the people from the power of their enemies while the judge was still alive. The Lord was moved to pity whenever they groaned because of those who were oppressing and afflicting them. Whenever the judge died, the Israelites would act even more corruptly than their fathers, going after other gods to worship and bow down to them. They did not turn from their evil practices or 
or their obstinate, proud ways. The Lord's anger burned against Israel, and He declared, Because this nation has violated My covenant that I made with their fathers and disobeyed Me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. Verse 22, I did this to test Israel and to see whether they would keep the Lord's way by walking in it as their fathers had. The Lord left these nations and He did not drive them out immediately. He did not hand them over to Joshua. Chapter 3, verse 1. These are the nations the Lord left in order to test Israel, since none of these Israelites had fought in any of the wars with Canaan. This was to teach the future generations of the Israelites how to fight in battle, especially those who had never fought before. These nations included the five rulers of the Philistines and all the Canaanites, the Sidonians and the Hivites, uh, they lived in the, in the Lebanese mountains from Mount Baal Hermon as far as the entrance to Hamath. The Lord left them to test Israel to determine if they would keep the Lord's commands He had given their fathers through Moses. But verse 5, they settled among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. The Israelites took their daughters as wives for themselves, gave their own daughters to their sons, and worship their gods. We can see the cycle I explained. We can see that after each cycle, they would return to their sin and they would return to it in an even greater fashion and act even more corruptly than their fathers. So each generation was acting worse than the one before. It's the when the cat's away, the mice will play. It reminds me of what happens in a classroom when the teacher walks away. I remember I, I was in an English class with Gene. He was quite the instigator. Every time uh, the teacher would leave, he was always rousing up the class. Uh, you don't remember that? You don't remember doing that? Well, <laughs> so. This is what happens when we don't think people are watching. Gene and, and I didn't have a class together. I made that up, just in case you wonder. But, uh, one interesting thing we've read here is that God left these nations to test Israel. So uh, when Joshua conquered the city-states, there were still some places left that had not fallen. And God had left them for a purpose. And it was for this next generation. There's a couple of reasons. One was so that they would know how to fight and protect themselves. Uh, to, to train and to be ready for war. I've got a friend who was on a SWAT team in a, in a nuclear missile silo. And they would, uh, they would train for these, to protect these silos if they were ever attacked. And so uh, here in the United States. And so I think it was for 12 years he trained and trained and trained and guarded those missile silos. Of course, nothing ever happened, which is good. But training. But we also, all of us will know that there's a big difference between the classroom and reality. And so part of this was so that they would know how to actually do it, how to protect themselves. But not only that, but to know how to protect themselves by depending upon God. 
And then the other reason he gives us is to see if they would make the same decisions, if they would decide to follow him. Without their parents, once these people had had, uh, once they were autonomous or independent of their parents, would they choose to follow God or not? What would they choose to do? We see people go through private schools, Christian, private Christian schools, and as soon as they graduate, they go their own way. We've seen kids go off to college, and the train, they, they completely derail. <laughs> right? Uh, some come back. Many do not. But these nations were left there as a text, as a test. And how do they, how do they fare in this, in this exam? Well, in verse 5, we find out that they, they decided to settle with them. They married them and they worshiped their gods. Each step is a obvious, inevitable consequence of the other. And I always use the example of marrying or dating someone who's not a believer because it's such a crystal clear, perfect picture of what's happening. You know, if you lower your standard and you decide to go out with somebody on a date who is not a believer, then that's who you're going to marry. You don't go out with unbelievers and then somehow marry a believer. That's not logical. It doesn't work like that. You're dating unbelievers. That's who you'll marry. And if you don't marry them, that's who you'll live with. That's what you're going to do. So uh, the first mistake is settling. You don't go out with them. But once you've dated them, once you've married them, now you're under the same roof and there has to be peace in the home. And the only way you can do that, folks, is by compromise. You have to make compromises. And so settling, marrying, and worshiping, they all go together, but it all begins with a really bad decision. Well, this introduction is coming to a close, and it closes with introducing us to the very first judge. And so we're going to read about him. But when we do, we need to keep in mind everything that we've been studying so far. Chapters 1, chapter 2, this first part of chapter 3. What has God been saying to us? And let's see how it applies. As we read this about this judge, as we read this section, you're going to be able to see the, uh, the cycle that's up there on the screen right now. As we read, it's just, it's just going to be a, a few verses, four or five verses. It has three or four verses. As we read them, you'll be able to watch this cycle unfold. Now, the judge that we're looking at is Othniel. And we met him last week when we studied chapter 1. Well, remember that he is a relative of Caleb, and he married Caleb's daughter, Aksa. And he, he married her as a reward for taking Hebron, conquering Hebron. And this is a godly couple. And so it should not surprise us that when there was a problem, God turned to Othniel. So God's got a, uh, he's a baseball coach, and he's got, a, he's got his uh, bench and he's got to fill those slots on the field and he's going to look around. He's going to find out which one of us is ready to go in. Which one of us has studied to show ourselves approved. Which one of us has been taking the right steps. Which one of us is capable and ready to fulfill the thing that God wants to do. And it was this man. Now you'll see up there there's major and minor judges and the only reason they're, 
<laughs> the only reason they're major and minor is because of the details that are given about them. One's not more important than another. It's just that, like Shamgar, we're going to have one verse. Chapter 3, verse 31. <laughs> one verse on this guy. So he's a minor judge. That's all the reason. But we are going to be looking at Othniel first. So uh, let's read this together, beginning in verse 7. The Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. So where are we at in the cycle there? We've had our rest, and now we're going around, the, going around now we're at about 2 o'clock. So the Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They forgot the Lord their God and worshipped the Baals and the Asherahs. Now the Baals and the Asherahs, that's the male and female in this uh, fertility stuff, okay? So they worshiped the Baals and the Asherahs, and the Lord's anger burned against Israel, and He sold them to Cushan Rishthim, the king of Aram, of the two rivers. And the Israelites served Him eight years. The Israelites cried out to the Lord, so the Lord raised up Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's youngest brother, as a deliverer to save the Israelites. You see that? The Spirit of the Lord was on him, and he judged Israel. Othniel went out to battle, and the Lord handed over the king of Aram to him, so that Othniel overpowered him. Then the land was peaceful forty years, and Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. So this ends with him dying. And so we know exactly what's getting ready to happen again, don't we? Now we're at the back at the top of the clock again and we're getting ready to go around that cycle again with another judge. But I think if you were careful as we read through that, you could see how that cycle is played out in here. It's very crystal clear. And what jumps out at all of us is that God is the author of history. So He is the one who sold them into uh, captivity, or if you want to call it that, to, these, to the king of Aram. And then and the king of Aram, so that's going to be up north. And so the two rivers is probably what Tigris and Euphrates, but it's like uh, it's up north. And so he has came down to cause trouble. And God sold them into them. And then we see God handing him back over to the Israelites. As a matter of fact, the first five judges are going to, in, are going to experience peace and rest at the end of the cycle. So this guy, once this goes around, we get 40 years of rest. In the next judge, there's going to be 80 years of rest. But after we go through about five judges, we stop seeing that. And it's because that reset button is not back at center anymore. And now we're going in this downward spiral where we think we're at peace and rest and we're doing good with God, but actually we've steadily moved down. And so this is the problem in this period of time. We also notice that there's not a lot of uh, there's not a lot of details about Othniel other than uh, the godly things we learned about him in chapter one, and that he's the guy that God called here in chapter three. Um, somebody actually said he was colorless. I'm not sure he's colorless, but maybe detailless um, as how. What were they doing? What was the king of Aram doing to the Israelites? What was happening that was making them cry out? How did Othniel overpower him? How did that happen? What did that look like? We don't have any of those details. 
And probably, I think, the reason is, is because this is a very sterile, generic introduction to the judges. Because God wants us to keep our eyes focused on what He's doing. Because as we go on, after this judge, the perspective changes. Instead of being up here with this aerial view about what God thinks, we're going to come down here. And so when we read about this next judge, we're back down on earth, looking each other in the face, and we begin to see the nuts and bolts of how a king do, what the king does, how a king is overthrown. Introductions are tough to teach because you're, it's, in this situation it's almost three chapters. It's hard to keep that exciting. But I don't want us to miss what God has actually done for us here. Uh, this is a fantastic tool for life. This introduction. Because when we're engaged in life, the things that we're going through we can forget to think about God's perspective. You know, just look at the, the political climate in the United States right now. You know, Trump was in office and people loved him and people hated him. And then there was questions about whether the election was, was legitimate or not, whether the five swing states cheated. And then there was this big struggle to get courts to look at it and no courts would look at it. Couldn't even get, couldn't even get one court in the entire country to look at it. Not even one even looked at the evidence. Never happened. And then there's this near insurrection protest at the Capitol, and then, then all of a sudden Biden's, you know, the president, and he may have early signs of dementia, we don't know. And Kamala Harris is waiting in the wings. And the, the House and the Senate is now fully in control of the Democrats. And there's, you know, there's all of this stuff that's happened. And it doesn't matter to me as much as uh, my point is not that whether you like that or dislike any of that, as the fact that, you know, as we're watching this mosh pit, you know, going on, where it's, everything's moving around, it's fluid, and uh, there doesn't seem to be any control. What the Bible is teaching us here is that God is in complete control. Not even for a second is He not in control. And it teaches us that while we are seeing things on this field, this plane, we always want to remember the way God is looking at it. What is God's perspective on these things? And so this is the most important thing that's happened here. You know, uh, you know introductions are, are great. You know, they're kind of like visiting the visitor center before you go look at the Vicksburg battlefield or something. But uh, uh, they're important. It's like I remember when we first moved here, uh, my wife and I moved from southwest Missouri, and so if you wanted to go see a zoo, you had to drive two and a half hours. If you wanted to go see a professional sports, you had to drive two and a half hours. You know, uh, So when we got here, there was zoos and baseball and football. There was Kings Island. I remember when we first started going to Kings Island, it was so exciting. And we would be with our, our little kids, and we would we would be halfway into the park and then we'd start to think, okay, well, where is such and such? And we'd all have maps in our hands, but none of us had, had taken them out to look. So now all of a sudden we're stopping what we're doing 
and we're looking at the map. And sometimes you're looking at the map while we're walking and we realize, well, we gotta turn around, we'll go back this way. You know, uh, the introduction in this book has created a, a fantastic road map for us so that we can understand what is happening in this time, this piece of biblical history. It's, it's a long time. It's over 300 years. If you think about uh, the, the, the history of our country, go back 300 years from the very founding all the way up to where we're at today. It's almost the same amount of time. So if you can just think about how long America has been here, this, this thing that we're in, this government, this country, that's about how long this period of time is. It's a very long period of time. A lot of people live and die in this period of time, and they go through this cycles, this relationship with God, and it brings them to an ultimate place that we're going to see at the end of the book. More importantly, this teaches us uh, the importance of being faithful. You know, um, I've talked about how these guys made compromises and how it cost them and how God wants us to, uh, to see that this applies to you and me. Um, if there's things in your life that aren't quite straight, then you should be addressing it, just like I have to address them in my life. I uh, lost my cool, honestly. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if some, everybody was here, but these, the, the speakers, I mean, everything in this place was just like not working. I'm talking into this mic right now instead of that one, and actually neither one of those work. And, uh, you know, uh, we have to check ourselves. We have to realize, be slow to anger. Remember that? And um, uh, in this final verse, this is, of course, Jesus talking. And uh, this, this, what we've been reading up to this point, uh, next, next week, again, we're going to be looking at a judge. We're going to move from up here down to here. And we're going to see some exciting, wild, unbelievable things. The book of Judges is crazy. It's just crazy. Some of the craziest stories you've ever heard. And as we're reading him, we're going to be thinking, okay, I remember how God's looking at this. We have perspective now from Him, thankfully from this introduction. And we also see that the little things that we do take us to places we don't want to go. We have to be faithful with the little things, no matter how little they are.